Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is a special holiday episode of Fifth and Mission. We're taking the day off, but we have a treat for you. It's an episode of the Chronicles Extra Spicy podcast, hosted by Soleil Ho and Justin Phillips. Now, just going off the odds, there's a pretty good chance you've eaten some grilled meats this weekend, or at least you might have been at a barbecue where other people were eating grilled meats. But is that something future generations will be able to do? Or will they only know chicken-free eggs and meatless burgers? Does that sound dystopian to you or pretty good? Well, it's a real possibility if Silicon Valley gets its way. Larissa Zimbaroff is the author of Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. And on this episode, she talks to Soleil and Justin about whether demand for alternative foods will overcome California's farm-to-table culture. And also, are these high-tech alternatives really helping to address demand on the food supply chain? Or is Silicon Valley just creating another product to buy? Here's Extra Spicy. Enjoy. All right, Soleil. When it comes to meat that isn't meat, the faux meat movement, I have like this weird kind of tingle that goes up my spine where I'm hopeful about the direction, like the purpose of it, what it's doing, but the execution messes me up. So when I think of, you know, slaughter-free meats, but then I also think of Burger King using an impossible Whopper, I get kind of confused (laughs) and pessimistic. And I think of like, you know, it all goes back to the sci-fi vibe, like that dystopian 80s movie where they have the one ending. They do the gotcha endings where the one ending, you're like, oh, everything is cool. And then it pans out. You see everything is terrible or exactly how it was. You know, I can't shake that feeling. Is that just me? No, it's not you. I mean, I'm always down to eat like interesting things like experimental foods. Of course, I'm all about that. But there's something about the centralized way of doing this to me. And that's the thing that freaks me out is like, I don't want to get all of my food from like a single source or like a factory. It makes me think of going to the museum and getting the space food, you know? Oh, yeah. The freeze dried like applesauce. (laughs) The astronaut ice cream, man. I loved that. Yeah, exactly. Do I want that as a burger? I don't know. That's the perfect starting point. With that said, people, this is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Salejo. Today, we're talking to journalist and author Larissa Zimbaroff. Her latest book, Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat, is fascinating. And it's also really easy to read, considering it's all about science and all about science-based foods. It provides a lot of insight on the give and take of these alternative foods like help die for food and fungi foods like products and, of course, Impossible Burgers, air-based proteins, all that good stuff. So there's like a theme underneath all of this, right? Like the theme is trust. We're putting a lot of trust as consumers into these companies that are leading this 
faux meat movement wave. But we have companies that sell meat meat, not alternative meat, like Belcampo, the Bay Area-based sustainable meat company that, you know, is praised for selling meat that comes from its specific farm. And they have a spot in Santa Monica where apparently they're selling meat, as far as we know, that wasn't locally, organically raised. So it's right, like from Tasmania, which is <laughs> not in California. So if we had trust issues before, we, we definitely have trust issues now. So I think that the timing, right, of, of our interview with Larissa is very on point. If you want to learn more about the Belcampo story, you can go to our website, sfchronicle.com. Elena Kadvani did a really great story on it, so you can investigate there. And here's our conversation with Larissa Zimbra. Uh, Larissa, thanks so much for doing this. This is super exciting. We get to take a anytime we get to get granular about a subject matter, it's always awesome. But before we get that, like you mentioned, journalist and author, I want to start with the book and just get an idea of why did you use the title and use the phrase technically food for this? I feel like that could give us a good starting point for this conversation. Yeah, that's a great starting point, especially because no one's really dug into that. Um, my use of it, they kind of just say, oh, I love that title. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, technically food is in one respect, it's just me being clever. But in another, it was that these are all simulacra of uh, the foods that we knew, like what's being created with these, I call them new foods in my book, um, that these, these things that were being um, fed today that are being sold in our supermarkets already are things that are different from what we knew. So these analogs are brand new and something that we don't know of as food traditionally. So it was, you know, where is our food going um, what are we eating? You know, cultured meat, meat made in the lab of cells, like even just trying to describe if something is vegan, if no animals were used, but the, there are animal proteins in it just became so complex mm. that it's like, well, it's technically food. Yeah, I guess if you um, if you're taking a biopsy from a cow, for instance, to start off your like cultured meat, like that's it's not vegan per se, because the cow didn't consent to that process. But no one died for it. It's, it's yeah, it's really weird. It's weird, weird stuff. And so a, a lot of the businesses and, and we've known this, like especially um, covering food, covering this industry in the Bay Area over the last couple of years. Uh, I don't want to say it was not a surprise, but it makes sense that a lot of the businesses that you mentioned in the book are Bay Area based. Like uh, I remember there was like an explosion of this kind of research, this kind of work. Especially for me, since I, you know, I started here in 2016 and there was like a, it just felt like there was a rush over those like first couple of years, like between 2016 and 2018. And I guess one of the things that I've always been curious about, and it might be a simple answer, it might be complicated, but why are so many of those companies based out here? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, especially I, you know, I snuck in the word Silicon Valley in my title, my subtitle, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. You know, you can, without investment, these companies are nowhere. And, mm. you know, one example is Eat, uh, Eat Just, which used to be called Hampton Creek. They started in 2011. So they're actually one of the very early food tech companies. 
But the reason they're still here 2021, you know, 10 years, a decade later is because of investment. Like they just closed more investment, right? These companies aren't profitable. They, they aren't like fully formed baked business plans yet, but they're the reason they're here in San Francisco. And obviously they were started here, um, each us specifically was because investment dollars were so close. Investment dollars and technology were here. And I think, you know, now if you looked at it 2021, you'd see companies kind of everywhere. Like is Israel has a very robust innovation, food tech innovation, uh, sector. So other countries are really growing rapidly. So it's no longer, you know, San Francisco is top dog. Like I know a company that's in Sacramento, uh, the Better Meat Co. And you, you're finding it other places, but the investment and the technology, the resources, the workers were here when it first started. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, I'm curious then about the whole VC startup dynamic. You know, after all the research you've done into like the VC backed new food startups, I guess there's an existential question of just like, do you think it's possible to both save the world and make a buck? <laughs> uh, I wish that food didn't rely on capitalism mm. because then what I was eating, I would know it was healthy for me. Um, so the problem is that the underpinning of, of food and big food and now new foods is that they need to make a buck. Um, and with that, there isn't, to me, there isn't um, a priority to, is it healthy and good for us? Is it good for my microbiome? Is it good for my brain? Is it good for my emotions? Like there are, we're just like, we're just finding these things out today. We're barely scratching the surface of like our gut of our, of our brain on food. And so to like kind of launch these things into our, into our systems is something to, um, I think to be, to question. Right. Like, how do they get around that then? Like, how do you get around the sort of constraints that are put on a company or by researchers, by, uh, you know, the demands of capital? You know, that's a, that is a hard question. Um, I think that these companies have missions that are typically climate-based. Uh, how can we like save the planet? How can we end industrial animal agriculture? Um, and now after the pandemic or during the pandemic, it's hu- how to, how to like save us from future human diseases. And those are becoming so important that, um, human nutrition and human health is almost like you're kind of on your own. Like <laughs> that's why I wrote the book was because we are on our own to learn, to become, uh, aware of what we're doing and what we're putting in our body and what we're ingesting and how um, important it is to think about those things. Uh, unfortunately, most people don't want to do the, that kind of effort. That's kind of heavy lifting. Uh, but I hope that this book at least gives, gives people that beginning of an inclination of like how foods are made and what's going into it and who the companies are. And, and, you know, I just think we all have to be better informed and, because we're not going to end capitalism and we're not going to end these startups wanting to make their investors money. And we're not going to stop these startups wanting to go public and make more people money. You know, just even watching the investment market during the pandemic has just shined a light on like how crazy things are getting and how fast they're moving. Right. I mean, it is so interesting to me to see companies like Chevron, right, the the huge like energy company, bankrolling these sorts of efforts to mitigate climate change through food. And I'm just like, you know, it, it's hard to reconcile um, yeah. what they're yeah. thinking. I mean, 
I mean, like taking, uh, emissions from the air from Chevron to turn it into protein that then I will put in my body. Uh, That's really hard to wrap my head around. There's a very, (laughs) Soleil and I have talked about this before. There are elements of this that just have that very 1980s dystopian sci-fi vibe to them. Oh, yes. Where, you know, something seems a little bit off and it's going to take a while to put your finger on it, but it'll reveal itself at some point. Definitely. I, I, I have the sci-fi thread in the, in my book, um, in mm-hmm. a few places. Right. And, and now people are looking into space, right? They, everyone wants to be on space, living on space now. And these foods, <laughs> these future foods, these new foods are lo- being looked at as possibilities. I know. Just the fact that people unironically drink Soylent like every day now just stuns me. <laughs> Everyone wants Soylent to be in my book. Um, and it's mentioned in like a couple sentences, but in, al- in the algae chapter. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I can't I can't even fathom it as something I want to put in my body. <laughs> so that that's actually that's actually a good segue to where we're going next like you you mentioned algae and in the book you also mentioned fungi and there's like a a historical context to it where these like alternative sources uh for food aren't technically new to the world but you know if we think about um africa for example use uh people have eaten seaweed there um but it all comes back to like the demand that this puts on the environment, like the drain that it might put on the environment. And is there, what is the thinking between like what these venture capitalists and these kind of startup companies, um, like the taxing that they're putting on the planet itself, even though like the intention is positive and their hearts in the right place, but there is a, there is a drain of resources of some sort, isn't there? Absolutely. You know, all of these foods are going to need the same crops we're growing today. So like Mm -hmm. peas, soy, wheat, they're all going to need those staple crops grown. If, even if it's just for the carbohydrates, like to grow the lab-based meat cells. And so we still have an agricultural system that has problems. If it's like a, that needs to be like giant, massive scale, right? If we're still at massive scale, to me, that's something to investigate further Um, If lab-made meat is made in industrial manufacturing processes, like, you know, 200,000 square foot facilities, to me, that's an industrial Mm -hmm. system. And we, we are, this is, this is not a fact that, that is new, but we, we grow enough food for everybody right now. We grow too much food. We have too much food. I mean, just go into our supermarkets, but we're not getting it to everyone that needs it. So like, what if more of these, more of this money went to solving problems we have now versus solving these problems of the future. Right. Like, is it a question of supply versus distribution? I mean, um, you come into this, too, in the debate about, like, insect-based protein, for instance, where people, you know, there was a huge rush to to make, like, cricket bars and cricket powders, I think, yeah. you know, in the <laughs> 2010s. But I think generally speaking, we have that food and people also already eat bugs in in places where, you know, there is a lot of um, food scarcity and they love it. Like bugs are good, right? They're really popular among like Dalit people in India, for instance. And it continually comes down to a question of who's getting the food and how much and marketing this stuff to Westerners just never made any sense to me. 
Absolutely. I, I think that they have sort of managed to get the United States in. So like, if we just look at impossible and beyond and eat just right, they've, they've won over a, a good section of the United States. Now they've moved on to China, right? So they're, they're, they're really tactical in their, and their mission of like finding the biggest country to make the most impact than to get the biggest, the fastest, right? They're, you know, it's like each, each company comes out with their, their press release of like, we got Burger King or we got China, we got China. Like, you know, so it's like, <laughs> it's like China. this, this like monopoly game of mm-hmm. like trying to get the next biggest place. You know, these American companies, these U.S. companies are making food for Asia. Asia already has a really robust, like, plant-based meat kind of, um, products that that they're already eating, like been eating tofu forever. Right. So they've already got their food. So why are these U S companies going there? What about the China based companies that can make these foods instead that can make the, you know, kind of site specific foods. Um, it is starting to happen. I've been reading about African companies that are making different meat, like plant-based meats for their, um, their popular, their communities, which makes sense for them. So it's like, stew meat that's um dehydrated that you add water to that becomes something more like what they were looking to to eat and to me that makes sense right so it's the it's the 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 desire to be so big so fast that you become the burger for the world versus like make the burger for san francisco or make make the you know whatever (laughs) for the you know the fried chicken for the south like you know it's like be more site specific, I think is something that I would like to see. That is a really fantastic way to put that. And, and, and I, I remember in the past when we used to write about this, uh, like years ago and there was just this kind of like wishful thinking about where, you know, especially like plant-based products and just this like whole entire alternative meat movement could go. And then I remember like after a couple of years seeing an impossible burger at Burger King and being like, I feel like, I feel like we took a wrong turn somewhere. (laughs) This doesn't feel like the right kind of end result that we might've been looking for a long time ago. Yeah. Um, I think it was pretty amusing too, because it's like they started impossible, for example, started with the high end chefs, right? So they were like, let's get the culinary world. Let's get the Dave Chang. Let's get, um, Chris Cosentino, let's get, um, that caliber of chef cooking it so that they cook it right. So that cus- customers like need to like wait in line to get into the restaurant to get the food. And then eventually mm. it started going into smaller restaurants and just more like more food service restaurants. And then all of a sudden it was like every fast food chain, uh, which is just, you know, the fast food chains needed a reason for people to come to their to their locations because people, you know, foot traffic was dying down. So for them, it was an it's all marketing, right? For them, it was a reason for people mm-hmm. to come in and eat a burger once, a, once or twice a month of any sort, right? Don't eat a burger every day and don't, don't give people a reason to like have this stuff really cheaply. We have a diet that's made us very unhealthy. We had a diet, we have a diet that has made the, put the U S in a very bad position when COVID hit. So, um, it, it, are these new foods going to change that? Are they going to make it better for us? And that's what I'm not sure about. And that's again, you know, one of the things that propelled me to, to sort of spend a, two years researching and writing. No, that's a, and I love the thread that you just pulled on about how there was like a trickle down effect of who was using this from like fine dining chefs on down. And this, this could be a conversation for another day, but it just reminds me of like the Bay Area. There's an exclusivity. Uh, there's a financial access barrier a lot of times when it comes to 
people being able to quote eat healthy or have healthy options provided to them and you're absolutely right like there's a point in time and i remember this clearly where this kind of meat or these alternative sources were uh Rather the price range for people. But the idea was to get it to them at some point and then it trickles down. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after a quick break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We're back with more on the many ways in which Silicon Valley is trying to change the way we eat. I think, and this is what I hinted at earlier about getting a little granular. This is what I'm kind of excited about. <laughs> okay. The creation or the process of creating some of these alternative foods either feels secretive or it feels so confusing that it seems secretive, you know? And I would love, if possible, for you to kind of uh, like walk us through an example of how chicken-free eggs are made. Like something that that our listeners could possibly understand in that process. Yeah, um, that's great. Um, great question and great topic. Actually, I have chicken-free eggs in my refrigerator right now. <laughs> <laughs> so the chicken-free eggs, they so again, we'll we'll focus on eat just because there's there's sort of two versions of the of right now. There are the two versions of chicken-free eggs, which is the the scramble that. Uh, Eat Just is created that's made from mostly from mung bean protein. And then there's a company like Clara, which is culturing the protein. So getting a, a, a bacteria that can output proteins that come from the egg and the egg has dozens and dozens of proteins. And so they're looking for like, what are the proteins that people need to use in formulations? So there's as much more of a, an, a base ingredient, whereas the Eat Just is very, very much a commercial product. And um, you can kind of look at these different startups as their goal is like, they talk about being a, an ingredient supplier or they're like, oh no, we really want to bring a commercial product to the market. Investors often want a commercial product because they want proof. So Eat Just did that. They made this mung bean based egg and they, you know, when they started, the company started, they talked about wanting to have the world's largest database of plants. And this database of plants would catalog and know how everything was going to work, right? Just this like, you know, there's like hundreds of thousands of plants that we don't eat and only like 300 that we mostly eat. Um, but and eventually, you know, they came out with just mayo, which is made from canola, which is not new or unusual. And the mung bean egg is, is new and does do something different. They take the mung bean, which has a mix of starch and carbohydrate and protein, and they, they do something called fractionating it, which is that they have to separate the ingredient, the parts, the molecules, and the protein is what's put into the scrambled egg. Now, they they have, the company has videos that show like, you know, just like piles of mung beans and like, you know, harvesting the mung beans and like very like natural, natural things that are happening when it's not a natural process. It's a industrial scale process. There are, there are only about eight ingredients in the eggs overall, if I'm remembering correctly, but, um, you know, there's going to be a binder. There's going to be something that gels the they're they've done something to the mung beans to make them foam. Josh Tetrick, the founder of Eat Just has, you know, his goal is to make his eggs creamier and more farm fresh tasting than the real egg. Now, well, why not just say, call it something else? 
like, couldn't we call it something else? Like why it's like the goal of all the the plant-based bacon makers to make bacon. Like that's impossible. Like it's like, Mm. just try to make something different, like make it, call it something else. Like, so like to replace the chicken egg is, is a pretty like audacious goal. And I think that like the reason I eat it here and there is because I do prefer to eat more plants than other things, but I do have doubt when I eat them. Like, is this good? Now I'm really like, nitpicky and I really like to go deep. Justin, like you said, you want to go granular. Like I really want to know, like, is this good for me? And those are hard, Mm -hmm. those are hard questions to answer. And that is um, the dilemma I think with new foods. Right. I mean, I'm trying to imagine explaining this to, to like a five-year-old, right. Um, (laughs) Where like the, the kid can tell, I mean, you can tell them very easily, like the egg comes out of the chicken's butt. And it's fine. We eat it. Right? Like one sentence. Yes. You're absolutely right. One sentence. And like that's There's the no struggle, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like how do you sum all of that up in one sentence? I mean, I think your description was very clear and cogent, but like it's it feels like a really hard sell. Yeah. Yeah. I think that like um, in the way that like I might be in between uh, internet and pre-internet, um, we're going to have very easily well-versed kids that like completely get it, um, in a way that we don't completely get it because we know the other, the previous world. Like I, like there's like, you know, Gen Z, then there's generation alpha. So it's like that they're going to, each generation we go down will become more and more comfortable with the, the 20 sentence description of what they're eating. Right. (laughs) And they won't Mm -hmm. think anything of it. Like it'd be like trying to describe what TikTok is to my grandma. Um, (laughs) Is the chicken free chicken explanation, like for people who don't understand it, is that going to be equivalent to like our grandparents being like, I walked five miles in the snow to school. Are we going to be that next generation of being like chicken, chicken eggs came from chickens when I was younger. (laughs) Now it's completely different. Like, is that the transition that we're headed for? It it definitely is the transition we're headed for. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, you know, I mean, it's very dystopian view of the, the world, but where do you see it going? Like, I don't, like right. we're not going back to like, oh, farmers and farmers markets. Like, I mean, we're going to have them, but they're going to become even more elite, I think, um, and more <laughs> unusual. Um, right. you know, it, it's going to take time to get us there, but it'll, it'll eventually be very unusual, I think. Okay. Because this, this leaves us off on a really interesting point where there's this part in the book where you sort of speculate about how Alice Waters, you know, the founder oh, of Chez Panisse, right. would prepare cultured meat chicken. And, you know, you imagine she would, you know, uh, pair it with morels or, you know, like seasonal mushrooms and that kind of thing. And then you sort of conclude that, of course, she wouldn't actually cook this because it doesn't make sense to her. Um, and I think about like how Michael Pollan, like one of his principles is eat food that your grandparents would recognize. <laughs> as one yeah. of his, you know, um, eat real food kind of um, polemics. Pillars. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And like Californian cuisine, which, you know, is is the cuisine, like the sort of regional cuisine where we in, like live is about like decentralizing the food supply, right? Knowing the farmer, being able to visit the farm, um, buying farm to table, going to those farmer's markets that you mentioned. So do you think those chefs, the Californian cuisine adherents will ever embrace new food? I think there are plenty of chefs that are interested in it. And I think chefs, the chefs I talk to are very interested in what fungi and mycelium and koji can do for 
their, um, as a protein sort option for vegetarians and vegans in their like high end restaurants. And, but I do know that there are lots of chefs out there that are completely uninterested in this topic. They're like, no, we should just be eating every part of the animal that we're, that we're not eating. We should just do away with industrial animal agriculture. You know, there are still, we still have, because chefs are of a certain age, like, you know, of, you know, you, you guys and myself included somewhere around there, they're still, they're still in the like, I ate real chicken with eggs coming out of their butts long ago. And that's what I'm going to cook. Um, <laughs> so I think that we're just going to have this like for uh, decades, I think we will have a very like um, stratosphere, like uh, chef category that's doing vastly different things and believes in different things. I guess like vegan food, uh, Larissa, mm-hmm. over the last couple of years, I think like there's there's this been there's been this discussion as of late, or at least one that I've thought about more recently about, uh, you know, as as these food types, as they became more accessible in the Bay Area, um, you know, fast food places using vegan food options and there was more access to it. There were varieties that were created where you could question the nutritional value of them. Like, is it actually healthy to eat? I want to apply that to, you know, these alternative proteins that we're talking about now. Like, is this maybe it's just a very basic question. Like, is this stuff healthy for us to eat or is that or is it or does it depend on how it's prepared or what it's paired with? But just generally, is it healthy for us to eat? That's a great question. Um, And one I get often like people want to know. And it's it's one of the things that drove me to write the book. And because I have type one diabetes, which I right about in my introduction, I really know, I know clearly what is good for my body. I can see it in my blood sugar. I can see it in my insulin resistance. I can, I can feel it in my energy levels. I, I know what is going on. And when I eat ultra processed foods, which many of the, like I would put, you know, whole food, um, impossible foods and beyond in that category and many others, I don't want to just blame them. Um, I would put them in this ultra process category, which is that, you know, there are 18 to 20 ingredients. They come from different people, different locations around the world. They are modified when they modified at, at the original end. They're modified in the intermediate steps. They are modified at the very end. And I can see what happens when I eat those foods, that they are not good for me, that they, they require more insulin. Like if I ate 20 grams of carbs from a burger and 20 grams of carbs from a a pineapple, I'm going to need different amounts of insulin. Even though if you were like looking at the sort of the basics of it, carbohydrates, they might be the same amount that my body will need different things for, for them to process them. And, um, I think it's important for people to think about, especially with the type two diabetes, you know, picking up incredibly and more of the country being having prediabetes. I think that if you're looking, I just saw a brand that is making burgers from only whole food ingredients and they're calling their burgers like colors. Like there's the orange burger and the purple burger and the black burger. The black burger has black beans in it. And the, you know, the purple burger has eggplant in it. I don't remember. I can't remember what the purple thing was, but like, look at the ingredients. Like, are they things that you should be eating, which are whole foods? Right. And well, no one has said that they're going to make a, a cultured tomato, like a fake tomato formed of the tomato molecules. But I, I, I could see that happening down the road. Um, but 
the closer you can eat to fewer ingredients, the closer you can eat to knowing how many steps of processing delivered that food to you. Um, and I haven't even gotten into like how it's prepared, which is, you know, that's, you sort of know that. Is it fried? Is it not fried? But, um, I think that I try to count on my hand, like how many steps something has taken to get to my plate. And that's mm. where I look at it. Like, is this good? Is this bad? And to me, um, I, you know, I, I feel a bit incorrect saying good or bad, but it's like, is my body going to respond well to this? I guess that begs the other question too, of just, um, I guess, how do you feel about the point that maybe vegan junk food has a place as well? Oh, well, for sure. I mean, they get, they get to eat Kit Kats too, which now, which now exists thanks to Nestle. Um, you know, they did all this work to make vegan Kit Kats. And I mean, it's going to be just such a small fraction of their, of their sales. Uh, even right now, plant-based meat sales are 1% compared to traditional meat. So right now we think that it's everywhere and we think that everyone's eating it and we think that everybody wants it, but it's still such a tiny fraction. But I think that companies see that offering something for vegans, offering something for vegetarians, even if it's a small fraction of people ordering it is, um, important for their sort of future in, in their future capitalistic, you know, hopes. So I don't want to take up too much of your time. So this will be my last question. What are we missing just broadly as general people in our understanding of fake meat? Like what questions should we be asking at the grocery store like when we are confronted with these products? So I do love Michael Pollan. You brought him up. I love Michael Pollan. What Michael Pollan says is, you know, eat food, mostly plants, not too much. And my line is eat variety, eat for like diversity. Um, have your, make sure your diet has as many whole bit, whole bit, whole foods as possible. So like I said, the burger, if you want a burger, fine, but don't eat it all the time. Don't eat anything all the time. Your, your, your body, your health is going to be so much better if you eat just a variety of foods. And, and it doesn't mean a variety of foods in crinkly plastic bags. It means a variety of foods that you know. And I don't want to be like, oh, she thinks we should only eat from farmer's markets. But, you know, it's like if you have questions, then there are reasons for those questions. And it's something to look into deeper. Awesome. Well, thank you. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, that was amazing. And but so before we let you go, uh -huh. um, Larissa, can you tell people how they can find you, where they can find you, your work. Um, yeah, give them, give them the details. Yeah, so my book, Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat, is out June 1st. I have a virtual bookstore event on June 14th. You can find all of my events and my podcast appearances on my uh, website, which is my name. Also, it, you can find it at the URL, It's Technically Food. I have a newsletter that I send out once a week. It's short and sweet. It's about what I care about or what I got pissed off at about food <laughs> that week. <laughs> Tons of things. And if you want, my mom can send you everything that I'm in. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> love that. That's so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and for sharing everything you've like put into that book with us. And I cannot wait to post all about it when it comes out. I'm so excited. So great. Yeah. It was really great talking to you. I really enjoyed both of your writing and I, I appreciate you uh, having me on your show. That's all we have for today. Thank you to Larissa Zimbaroff for joining us and to Taya Francesca Price for producing and editing this episode. 
If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening. 